This is Quorum with Quorum's Quorum. My guest today is Mega Parekh, who is the chief legal officer of the Jacksonville Jaguars. What was interesting here was the transformation from a typical hard-charging big law attorney to someone with a much more integrated life and the systems that Mega put in place to facilitate that. So I hope you'll find those interesting as well and enjoy. Mega, thanks for joining me. So fresh from your workout. Yes, I am. I had to squeeze it in. Um, I'm glad you did. That'll probably, I'll probably be the beneficiary of that energy level. Um, so, okay. So you were telling me that, uh, much the morphication of your mom, you, when you were young, you chose drums over flute. So tell me what was the moment that you felt like, okay, like I just like you, 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 there's different musical instruments you like, but you're like the drums. I'm just so drawn to it. I got to play drums. So I, um, I have this awful personality trait where anytime someone tells me that I'm supposed to do something or should be doing something, I want to do the exact opposite. So I basically tried to think of, okay, what is the least traditionally feminine instrument that a nine-year-old girl could go ask to play? And um, I also like one of the, one of the hallmarks of being able to play drums and guitar is just having rhythms. Like I have pretty good natural rhythm. Like I'm not a really strong singer. I'm not the world's best guitar player, but I do have natural rhythm. So um, on Father's Day, actually, when I was nine, my dad went to the music store and he's an otherwise very, very frugal man and dropped like $700 on a new drum set. And I, I banged on those things for, for years and years. And they're still at my parents' house and my niece and nephews play with them now. But that was, that was my first instrument that I played was the drums. But you said that your mom wanted you to play flute. She did. How did she, she wanted me to play flute. She wanted me to not be friends with boys. She wanted me to not get so dirty and sweaty all the time in the street. But I think that overall, we, we've, we've negotiated over the last 35 years to come to some mutual understanding. Okay. And so I also, I mean, like we were joking about this earlier that like the last thing that, you know, say a South Asian community needs to hear is like another story about, you know, the, uh, you know, somebody making their way through Harvard and, and, you know, going to Harvard Law School. And so we were just kind of joking about that. But having said that, you have a super interesting story about getting to Harvard and the choice to do that. And I would love to hear some more about that. Sure. So I, um, when I was a senior in high school, that was still, and I guess I don't know if this is the case or not, but that's when early admission was still possible or still common. I applied to Rutgers and to Harvard. And I found out that December, absolutely shocked. Um, when I got home and saw the big envelope on the table and I grabbed it. And the first thing I did was go right back to high school because the person who encouraged me to apply was actually our high school baseball coach. So one of the other things that my mother did not understand why I did it was I, I love baseball. Um, I always have, but in high school, I, I did the book. I was our baseball manager for the team and um, I would tutor kids uh, in their SATs or for tests or things like that to help keep them, them eligible. Um, and then it was our baseball coach who actually was the first person who said to me, I know that you think that you're not going to be able to get in. He's like, but you can get in. He's like, you're very smart. He's like, you'll, you'll do well there. Um, and so I got in and I went right, right back to school and told him, but so he was, Sometimes I think it takes other people seeing things in you that you might not otherwise see. Um, and he was a great, great mentor. And I've had several along the way and I've been really lucky in that sense where other people have encouraged me or pushed me to do things that I might not necessarily have thought that I was capable of. And so then when you, so you went to Harvard and I, you graduated in three years, is that right? I did. And that was mostly just to save my parents some money. So I remember when, 
you know, the Rutgers tuition was going to be zero and the Harvard tuition is obviously not that. And I did, I asked my dad, I said, look, if you want me to go to Rutgers, especially because I'm sure that there's grad school in the future, I was like, I'm good with that. Um, and he said, absolutely not. But so I would have stayed in college till this day if I could have, um, because it was so much fun, but it was so much fun. The quality and the intellect of the people that you're surrounded by is also incredible. Like that was the biggest shift for me is like, let, like, not only the faculty, but my peers were phenomenally smart and you could tell think differently than other people that I'd met before in my life. So that was an incredible experience. Um, but I mean, I had the benefit of like taking a class on women's human rights from Catherine McKinnon. Like that's, that's like learning how to play guitar from Eddie Van Halen. It doesn't get sort of any better than that. Um, but my dad, because I didn't want them to have to keep on paying um, forever. And I knew that there was grad school ahead. They paid for college. And then I had probably three or four jobs throughout college and law school as like a research assistant. I worked in the library um, and I had a few other jobs. And so I paid for half of law school. I ended up getting really lucky that I graduated in three years from undergrad because by the time I graduated law school, it was 2009. And had it been a year later, there's a very solid chance that I would not have started my job on time and been delayed a year like many, many other young attorneys were that were graduating at that time. Um, yeah, that is a good stroke of luck. I, uh, I actually graduated college in three years too. And I also gained the system by, uh, you know, forwarding over some of those, uh, AP classes. So they were, they are a good investment. Unfortunately, this is the South Asian crowd again, doesn't need to hear more about how to invest in, uh, in AP credits, but, um, yeah, that's really incredible. And so then, okay. So then on to law school, but I didn't really hear about, it seems like you had, um, pretty distinct and contrarian ideas up until now about like how to proceed. So like was law school also a, a contrarian move? So no, to be honest, that was probably the one thing that I've done with my parents were like, you need to be a doctor or a lawyer as, as do most um, Indian parents who think that only professions, maybe, maybe accounting are there. I remember telling my dad at some point, I was like, I really am enjoying marketing because I had an internship at MTV one summer. Um, and that was in anticipation of writing my senior thesis on heavy metal music. So that was definitely contrarian. Um, but I ended up going to law school in part because one of, I, I didn't really realize this until after the fact, but in hindsight, when I look at sort of what my main motivation was throughout my twenties, it was to get financial independence and to get enough money such that my parents who are the hardest working people that I know would feel comfortable retiring because they truly are. I mean, they, Throughout our childhood, my mom worked weekends or would work at night. My dad worked during the day and they basically tag team raising my brother and I. And so I was so grateful to them that it's like, you know what? I know that they will feel better knowing that I'm financially stable. Um, and I was able to achieve that in my by the time I was out of school. Um, and so it's actually been really nice because as the page sort of turned to my 30s and I came down here for this job, moving out of Manhattan, moving away from a law firm my entire quality of life has changed and is a lot more robust. And I have hobbies again, which I did not have for, for a decade while I was working or um, in school. And so it's been, it's been a really great shift over the course of these last four or five years. So it's actually focusing more on not just work, but life, even though work is busy and being a lawyer for the ownership group that we have. And also for, you know, a football team and a wrestling company and a music business is, is I, I can't imagine having a more entertaining job at times, if not if not surprising. Now, you must have felt pretty unusual four to five years ago choosing to go from a high-cost living area to a low-cost living area. Uh, I mean, some people do that for in-house roles. I mean, you might get taken to you know upstate New York or whatever. So these are things that happen. But 
um, it was still, you know, a, a less than common move for someone, you know, in the track you're at, uh, because any number of people from, you know, a big firm might say, okay, well, I do want to go in house, but I'll do that in the high cost living area, the urban area, whatever. So I think there was a somewhat unusual move back then. And so of course with COVID, so many people are quarantined in different places. I am, you know, from, I, I'm living in a way different place than I thought I would be uh, to be here in Maine, you know, not in an urban area at all. So like, what's your, when you see people kind of dispersing right now, like what, and, and experiencing the benefits of that work-life balance you're talking about, you know, cause I'm feeling that as well, you know, that I have so much more flexibility of my schedule to add in workouts. I mean, I lived close to my gym, you know, in Boston, uh, but I never established like a, a routine of doing a workout first thing in the morning, which I have now that, you know, I, I can just do it from home and there's just so much fewer transaction costs. So like I'm noticing myself that shift towards focus more on quality of life and aware that there possibly could be sacrifices of not being able to be in the urban area or whatever that I'm in. So I wonder if you, I feel like you're kind of early to that for, you know, this generation of, you know, white collar professionals and talk about the benefits of that balanced life you get from that. Do you think that's going to be, this is breaking a seal here. This could be more of a durable trend in this direction or what do you, what, do you have any thoughts on this? I do. I do think so. I don't see people going back to exactly what it was. So when I moved here eight years ago, I grew up in the Northeast, went to school in the Northeast, lived in Manhattan, thought there was no, no chance that I was going to ever leave that area for any extended period of time. This job presented itself and it was a impossible to turn down opportunity. And I thought to myself, as I was sitting in my New York office at like 4.30 and it was already dark outside and it was January and cold, I was like, let me give this a try. This was my own fault. I didn't even really know where Jacksonville was. I kind of thought it was in the middle, thought it would be a little bit warmer, didn't realize how close to the Florida, Georgia line it is. Um, but I remember coming down and visiting and the beach just made me, un- I grew up closest to the Jersey shore being on the beach just made me unbelievably happy. And I thought, okay, I'll do this for two years, learn about the business side of things and then go back because that's where my family is. That's where my family still is. My parents, my brother within 10 minutes of each other. And I really thought that I would go back. What I ended up finding is that I don't really have breaks on my own personality. And so it's very helpful to me to be in a business and in a city that has a little bit of a slower pace because I I don't have that kind of self-control. So when I was in New York, I worked a lot. I probably was billing like 2,700 hours a year, which is significant. And I just, I am that sort of in, in not a good way, right? Any strength taken to its extreme ends up becoming a weakness. I was burning myself out and it took me a couple of years to even admit that to myself. Um, but after being down here for a few years and at some point people were like, please stop emailing us at seven o'clock. Like we're not, we're done. Like we don't want to do that anymore. And learning how to then have a more sort of robust life again was great. I, I'm sort of eternally optimistic and I can be happy in any situation for the most part. Um, And so my hope is that what people find and what we found for our employees even is that there's a better understanding and forgiveness for the fact that people have lives. It's like, yes, right. They always did. But now like people are having to be out of the office for multiple weeks at a time, just because of contact with a known positive people have different situations with school. A lot of people have significant others who've lost their spouses. And for me, I still work a good bit, but the best thing for that is then to have flexibility in your schedule, like you were just referring to. So 
yes, I had to go in last Sunday. No big deal. If I left today at 11 AM after going in early and no one's like questioning that anymore. No one's questioning your work ethic, whether, because you're, whether or not you're sitting in the office or not, that's been a huge development for me personally. I think it's going to be very helpful, hopefully to working parents or to people who have to care for their own parents or others in their lives. Um, people that have, you know, to go pick up their kids from school are no longer being looked at as, Hey, you're, you're not a, a hard enough worker. You're not, you know, doing your job. It's, it's about getting the work done, not about you sitting at your desk. And, and you know, to our organization's credit and our leadership's credit, we were able to operate through an entire NFL season. We did not have any known transmission at any of our games, despite having fans. Um, and we've watched a wrestling business grow that's existed mostly during the pandemic. And that's a, that's a live events business. Um, and so it's really a credit to our leadership and their vision. And obviously there's some other factors just being in Florida and, and what the rules are. Um, but this last year has been one of the busiest of my career. And I, I know that that's not the case and I'm, I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for the job security. You know, you said a couple of things that are really interesting. Um, one of them is that, you know, you're talking about how, you know, we have a better understanding of the things people are going through and, you know, the flexibility that we have, we learn to have around that, around people's just human needs and, and the different things that people do. Um, that, that's really interesting because uh, you kind of hearing you say that just now helped me piece it together because what I, something that's been, I've been thinking about that, you know, I always felt like, you know, when you're in an office, it's great because we, we all have this thought that being in office, being in person is the best way to get to know people that glue in the water cooler talk, whatever. And of course that's true, but I always kind of wondered in the back of my head, you know, yes, this is how we all are here, but what are you like at home? I don't really have a yeah. sense even if I know your hobbies or interests, and I don't, and I don't mean just interests. I also mean just like, what are the constraints in your life? Cause that's part of what you're alluding to as well. Just both of those things that we need to understand, not just the good, but also the challenges to really understand someone else and work with them. So it's kind of interesting that I never would have predicted this. And I don't think many people would have, but by right. being virtual, it is so interesting, like how much better you understand other people in that way. So I think that's a really interesting uh, insight. Um, the other thing well, that I think said, that trust is also super important in the workplace. And when you learn more about people's home circumstances or their life circumstances, build empathy also learns how to build trust. Like the number of times that people have, like sometimes there's just people who assume negative intent and there's people who are wondering sort of where is this person or why aren't they here at this hour? And it's like, it doesn't matter. Like, are you getting what you need from them? And I think that's especially going to be helpful for women going forward who used to have to try and sort of separate out the you know the personal from the professional and I, I think that that my hope is that that's not a binary choice anymore one of the most interesting moments of this past year to me was watching the nfl draft which was all virtual a number of the general managers had kids in their um video because they were at home obviously doing it with their families and i remember thinking to myself everyone keeps on commenting about how like adorable this is that you're going to see them with their kids i'm like if this was a group of 32 women executives I don't think people would have this exact reaction. Like you see, and frequently on like calls that we've had, like you see women sort of like embarrassedly trying to deal with the fact that there's like a child somewhere around or running around in the background or whatever. And that dichotomy was really fascinating to me. And I think it's a good thing actually that the GMs did have their families in there and hopefully it becomes more normal for, for everybody. Are there, 
are there ways in which you think, are there other ways you which you think that, you know, post-COVID um, or remote work uh, will benefit women? Are there other things that you've, you've kind of reflected on saying, you know, this is something that will benefit women advancing in the workplace? You were just alluding to this sort of a moment ago, but I think that sometimes in the name, and this isn't necessarily just for women, but sometimes in the name of professionalism, you actually end up being sort of exclusionary. So I remember a few years ago, we did these like anonymous surveys at work. And one of the comments that came back was something about my attire. I was like, like, excuse me, like, no, like we don't, like no one else got commented on their clothing. And I, I'm a pretty small person in the same size since I was 12. So like a lot of my clothes are kids clothes, but like, there's nothing to me, there's nothing inappropriate about it. Are they sort of the classically, like, I'm just not into fashion. So like I, my clothes are from old Navy and target mostly. So they're not the sort of traditional things, but the fact that that comment came in was really like frustrated me and bothered me. And like, I had to mull that over for a long time. Like, I don't like, I'm not, not dressing appropriately or professionally. I'm just not dressing in a way that makes you, whichever coworker who wrote this down, feel like I'm fitting into your definition of professionalism. Um, And I think that that's true for a lot of our diverse candidates. So whether it's things like, you know, there's just cultural differences in terms of jewelry or attire or whatever people wear. And I think that in the South Asian community, I often sort of think back to like what I was wearing when I was 20, where like, I didn't have a guide. Like, I didn't really know what Brooks Brothers was. Like, I didn't know what the right thing to wear was on job interviews. And I do think that it would be really helpful um, for young professionals to have that guidance within the community, because there's a balance between being authentic and, um, you know, fitting in or dressing respectfully for other people around you. But I do think that it's going to be, I think hopefully because this line between professional and personal started to dissolve, my hope is that people also start to feel more comfortable being themselves and people are more inclusive. So it seems like these, this, that boundary is also going to help someone specifically like you, someone that you said, you know, just like, you know, it's going to always be on unless there's some obstacle to it. And so it's interesting, you know, that it seems like balance is so important to you now. Going back to, you know, you mentioned that, you know, that your time at the big firm that you felt like you were, you were potentially burning out. Is that an assessment that you made then or that something that you're saying now? Now, it took me probably yeah. about two years after the fact to really appreciate it, but definitely now. And like, I'm still, it's not as though... I. I if I'm not working, I'm filling my time with something else. My sister-in-law jokes with me that I probably have one too many hobbies. But one of the most sort of comical days that I had this past year is we were working on a real estate deal that was pretty intense. Um, and we're right at the end of it. I spent most of this was a Saturday. I spent most of the day working on the documents. At four o'clock, I ran to a tattoo consult. At 5.30, I had a call with our bo- my boss and like got the documents back out. Six to seven, I ended up playing an acoustic set at a bar down the street. And then the documents came back in and I cut the set short and I came home and I like reviewed them again. It's like, I'm still getting done what I need to get done, but I like that I'm no longer making the choice of, hey, I'm not going to do other things because of work. It's, I'm going to try and do everything as best I can, um, but not cut out the fun just in the, for the sake of working all the time, which I definitely was doing before when I was in New York. Mm. I would just cancel things or cancel vacations or not go. I'm like, it's always, but I'd rather work from, I, I ended up reviewing documents while on Splash Mountain um, a couple of weeks ago. And that's better. That's so much better. Like getting the things done, but not saying no and trying to make sure that there's time to integrate both has been really helpful for me personally. 
So is there something that you would say to your younger self? Like if you were to show up at Mega at the law firm, you know, is there something that you could say to Mega to help young Mega pick up on listening and tune into that? Because I think what you're raising, I think is really interesting. It's potential for any number of people to be burning themselves out or to be doing something that's not sustainable. Um, and they're just, they're not even tuned into it. So like, what would something that you would say to help someone tune into that? That's a great question. So I think a couple of things. One, it, there was a moment where my own mother said to me, you have nothing to talk about besides work. And that was a really like stark moment for me where she was, and it wasn't like an unkind comment. It was just like a, the only things that you are clearly paying attention to right now are work. Like you don't, you don't have anything else to talk about. I think that's, problematic. Yeah. I think getting roasted by your mom is a wake up call. I agree. Exactly. Um, and then look, I think that the other thing that I would say is that I, and this is my own fault and hopefully I've softened on it over the years, but my current boss, our team president actually did a great job of explaining to me. He's like, at some point he was like, I didn't really see this until he articulated it this way, but he was like, perfectionism is not the goal in any of your work product. And he's so business minded that it's really like helpful to hear that. He's like, perfectionism is not the goal. Get, get it done and get it done good enough. Um, and it depends on the things. Like, don't drop any of the important balls, but if something small falls, that's okay. I really struggled with that. Like, I thought that I needed to be the person who like got everything perfect on the documents. And that really wasn't necessary. Like, I was my own worst enemy on some of that. Some of that too, though, was a function of graduating during the recession. It was very, felt very lucky to have my job and probably um was so nervous that there was a chance that that job might go away for whatever reason that like I worked extra hard um, for that first 18 months. But learning how to say no and setting boundaries are things that I know that all professionals tend to struggle with at times. Um, and, you know, I needed to to learn how to not be embarrassed about the fact that, hey, it's okay to go take a workout during the day. And if someone calls, just answer. Like, it's all right, right? Like, it doesn't matter. We need to pause. <laughs> There's a couple Mondays ago, Someone called me at like 10.30 p.m. I was working out and I just took a 20-minute break, talked to them. I actually have to finish my, my workout after this um, and went back to it. And it's okay. Like for the most part, if you're working with good people, they're understanding that sometimes you will have life things to do and that's all right. So how And I hope that, that I'm that sort of a boss too. How's that going to affect, uh, I mean, is this kind of a, a change perspective you have? Or is this something that, you know... Was this kind of the attitude you had three years ago about work, or is this kind of a, a, a more recent kind of perspective? Um, I would say that it sort of evolved over time, but being moving to Jacksonville has definitely been helpful mm-hmm. just overall in terms of taking some of the, the edge off and the need to be so rigid and type A off. Mm-hmm. Um, I do find the beach to be unbelievably just like the the perfect place for absolute stress relief. Like you can't be angry out there and I'll go and take calls out there. There's been, but it's been a shift over time. It's like one of the things that I do at the office, which I know used to drive people nuts, but I would sit outside and work a lot. So our offices are in the stadium um, just to get sun. Cause like I moved to Florida. I have no windows in my office. Like I would like to go sit outside um, or I'll walk while on conference calls, which means that I end up walking like eight to 10 miles a day, just because of how many calls I'm on. Um, like you can usually get two hours of of calls in there. So, which is what I was doing the last time that we, we talked, it took a couple of years of people adjusting to that. And I did hear one of the worst days that I had at work was someone said to another coworker who then told me that the only reason I was sitting outside was to get attention from the players. And that like broke my heart. It's like, you know, I can work hard, but the fact that someone's saying that about me is like really frustrating. Um, 
And so now what you'll see at the office is there's outdoor workstations and any number of people are also walking around and talking while on the phone. And so it took some time, but I think that people realize that on the one hand, it's funny because someone just said to me, they're like, look, this is not normal. I'm like, that's okay. Like, I get that. It's not normal. And like, I'll do my best to make sure that I get everything done. But being healthy is far more important than fitting into whatever comfortable narrative other people have of you or what their, what their lawyer should, should be. You know, I'm detecting a trend here. And I, I think some of the things you're describing about kind of things that you, some co- sort of obstacles that you kind of uh, managed or resolved uh, kind of seem that they come from a somewhat conservative culture. Is that, is that specific to a lot of sports franchises? Like, I'm surprised to hear this. Like when you're saying, oh, like people are, being vigilant about attire, you know, maybe again, maybe just specific to some individuals, not others, but even so, like, I just, like, would even guess that anyone would have had that view, you know? I honestly think, I I think, I don't think that my experience is uncommon for women in the workplace period. Mm -hmm. And I also think that what people are shocked by is that I have more female colleagues here than I did at the New York law firm. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons why I left was I remember looking around the corporate department and seeing just a very small number of female partners. And it was like, I don't, one that was never really where like my interest was anyway. I always did like the business side of things, but the other was just like, the reality honestly was that most people had a stay at home wife. And it's like, I don't, no one's gonna be my stay at home wife. And if that's what it takes to make this job work, then I don't know how I'm gonna do it. And so another question that, you know, I feel like we have talked about, you know, the perspective that you have as a woman a lot. So I'm kind of going to jump a lot here. Um, I don't know much about wrestling. Um, my perception of it is that historically it's not exactly been uh, the bastion of uh, pro-women perspective. So how do you think about that? Like, what's the, the stamp that you're leaving on this organization? And, and what's what's the direction that you hope it goes? And, and please recognize, I don't know the very first thing about AEW uh, or or what its values are, but uh, so I'm just speaking to a, a general perception I have. Maybe somebody else shares it too. Uh, just want to hear more about like where you see that going. Sure, I mean, and that's a testament to the leadership that Tony has at that company. But he's always said from the beginning that he wants to put talent, health, and safety first, and he has. Um, so he does a great job of taking care of the talent. But what I think some people will be really surprised to hear is that. We just put like I layered on top our normal like corporate policies, which the wrestlers laugh about at times, but they're also really grateful for it. So like we've done harassment training and like respect in the workplace training for them. We've done, um, you know, all of the normal basic corporate stuff. We've signed up a number of them, helped them sign up for health insurance on their own when they didn't have it. So I think that they are actually very grateful because a lot of the wrestlers grew up in a really tough industry where they're driving themselves from one show to another and not, they're not really used to that sort of corporate structure, human resources and having those things available. So the next thing that we're planning on doing is a financial training for them. And they're, they're genuinely grateful for all of the trainings and the HR stuff that sometimes other people would roll their eyes at um, because they haven't had it before Mm. and they appreciate it. We just did performance reviews for them. Um, and so they're they're being run like a like a real business. They're just their their product is a pro wrestling show that's on TV. Um, the other thing is that you know I can walk in a room and ask people to respect me or talk about how I've been practicing law for ten years, but that's not how you earn 
people's trust, right? The best way for me to earn trust is really by having someone else vouch for my credibility. And that's a credit to the people that I work with. Like I remember, so our prior general manager, when I unprompted would go out of his way to talk, to tell other people in the league. And in part, just because I'm not trying to compliment myself, but I do look sort of relatively young. And that was one of the jokes amongst like the other NFL executives was like, who's this child lawyer? Um, but he would go out of his way to tell people that I was good at my job and that they should listen. And our prior head coach did the same thing. And the people that I'm working with now have been nothing but respectful on the wrestling side. Tony went out of his way to sort of say to the management team, like, Hey, you guys have to listen to her. You have to respect her. She knows what she's doing on one of our zoom calls. One of our wrestlers who just um, passed, which was very sad. He and I ended up speaking about something over the weekend. We were having a medical health and safety call and he unmuted himself and told everybody, and this was a person that I've been working with for just like six months, unmuted himself and told everybody that they should listen to me because I was really helpful to him over the weekend and that I was good at my job. You can't, you can't ask for things like that from people, right? It doesn't work that way. But the fact that I've worked with people and those are all men that I just described that are willing to do that, that goes a long way towards me being able to be effective in my job. And so, so for, for anyone listening out there who's a man, realize the impact that you could have on your coworkers by doing that. So, I mean, I hear you that, you know, that's about, you know, your credibility in the organization. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm asking uh, also about, you know, what is the changing face of diversity for wrestling itself? So I think, you know, like, you know, how to, on stage, you know, what are changing views towards, say, women or changing views towards other ethnicities um, that you could expect from AEW? Because, again, my perception of, wrestling historically has been not very diverse um, for gender ethnicity or otherwise. So can you speak, because it sounds like it's a very important thing to you. And so I'm interested to hear about any differences between that organization yourself and then anything that you're steering it to any direction you're steering it to. So it's actually a super important priority for both AW and for our TV partner. Like they would like to see different faces. So what you'll see if you actually watch um, a show is that we do have a pretty diverse roster both in terms of race and also in terms of gender. There's a women's division um, that we're working to to build up that's pretty strong. And then actually one of the male talent coaches the women um, just volunteers his time to do it um, to help them improve and grow. So not only is there sort of actual visual diversity, but there's a deliberate attempt to help people who might not have gotten opportunities in the past or who might need a little bit of extra training to succeed. Does this include South Asians? Are you, are you guys looking for South Asian talent to, to get on stage? So stay tuned, but you will you will probably be hearing something about that shortly. Okay, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I what we talked this last time, but I am pretty fascinated with the ownership being you know family ownership for your organization and the connections that you have between these because you you're working on a division uh, label. Is that right? A music label. Uh, we have an amphitheater that ha- hosts concerts. Okay, that's okay. That's one, and then yeah. um, and then also there is AEW, and then what are the other entities that you're managing? So we obviously have the football team. Um, we have a real estate development company for local real estate development here in Jacksonville, um, and then there is a company called Black News Channel, which is a uh, media company that's now in, I believe, 42 million households, if not a little bit more, that launched uh, just about a year ago. So that is a huge array of businesses to manage. So I, I'm just very fascinated with how you 
allocate your time and attention to those? Like how, what, what's that process like? I just, I want to, this is kind of a procedural question on a given day of like, how do you prioritize these different entities? And like, what's the time frame you're, you're operating to? Because I don't know how to run a network, but maybe there's a lot of upfront work to be done. And then, so maybe there's a certain time frame that things need to operate in. And of course, you know, uh, you know, any, you know, sports season has, there's a time component that as well. So there's different timelines that you're managing and different organizations probably bring in different revenue. There's just so many considerations, but just in your head, it's, you know, it's eight o'clock in the morning, whatever, and you have to make decisions about what are the things you're going to draw your attention to. So just like, what's your heuristic, what's your back in the envelope for going through a day and saying what you're going to prioritize? So for me personally, it's either the most important transaction across the companies or whatever crisis situation there is, which there tends to be probably at least 5% of my time devoted to managing some sort of crisis, even pre-COVID. Obviously with COVID, that became the most important priority was managing all of that. We, me and um, our athletic trainer were our infection control officers this year. And so really adjusting to that in real time was was the biggest um priority, both on the football and the the wrestling side, obviously concerts stopped. But so that's how I sort of allocate my time, which is what's the, what is the most important deal that we have going on? So whether it was signing our head coach uh, last week, our new head coach, or what's, what's the crisis situation that warrants my attention. And then I have a tremendous team. So our, we have two other attorneys and then a legal coordinator. Um, There's two women that run our HR department. We have seven in IT um, one in security, three in security and facilities. Um, and then one that helps with capital. And honestly, all of them are really strong team members. So that helps a lot too, where they, they're sort of subject matter experts in their own areas, like expertise. I don't like to get in their way, but if they need direction, I'm there to, to give it to them. And so across, you know, is there one business you finding, you know, that you have more fun with or you find more interesting? Like, is there any one piece of the business that you think is the most interesting to you personally? So they're all different, right? So on the football side, it's obviously a very exciting time for us with a new head coach heading into a draft with a first round pick and a bunch of salary cap space, right? So that's a that's a really fun environment to to be focusing on right now. But you know, Fulham's also in its transfer window. On the wrestling side, what's fascinating is that so much like we are the league as opposed to you know, the NFL prescribing things to us, AEW has the ability to set its own rules and policies. So I don't, I hate giving the classic lawyer answer if it depends, but it does depend. Um, And, you know, this past, the end of 2020 was a really bizarre conflation of responsibilities between um, working on the, that real estate deal that I was uh, mentioning earlier for local real estate development in Jacksonville around the stadium, which is a super interesting sort of professional challenge. Um, and also I, I don't spend as much time on politics, but so this became also a political battle, which was just interesting for me to learn about um, because I, I had not been involved in politics sort of in that way. And then on the wrestling side, we did lose um, that one wrestler and you know, his son, who I met just the week before he passed, he's now nine, he was eight then. I live just a few miles from Mayo Clinic. So I'm four miles from there. His mom dropped his son off so that she could go to the hospital and just, you know, take care of some things. The kid absolutely just took to me for some reason. And um, the day that his dad died, there's been no greater honor in my life than his, his mom told him what happened. He had hung out with me the week before 
And he said, okay, can I go to Mega's house and play now? And he stayed for about a week. Um, and so it was this crazy mix of like working on sophisticated transactions, but then also learning and like remembering how to be a human and what's really the most important thing in life. It's so, like this past Thursday, he had to zoom into school. I went like, and had to go drive. And, like, he like was hanging out here. We went to the office. Like he was doing school for my office. I was like doing, working on things. And I was like, you know, this is just, it was a cool experience in and of itself. And a few years ago, one of my friends said to me, she's like, you know, the only thing at this point that you can't give yourself is like gratitude because you're just not, you're not able to. And she's like, I, she wrote me this really beautiful card and she said, I'm going to give that to you now because that is the only thing that you can't give yourself. And I sort of felt that same way with this family where I feel so grateful that I was the person that he chose to spend time with and how close I've gotten with them. And it's been at a time when I can't go home and see my family and my nephews ate, it was a very odd sort of replacement. And the amount of love that that kid has to give is, is really, really like refreshing and a reminder about what's important in life. That's really special. I hope that's like something you can expect like a Netflix movie on. It seems like a really special connection there. Yeah. You know, I wonder, yeah, I wonder why, um, I wonder why you speak so much about gratitude. I mean, I think it's really remarkable that you have such a orientation to that. Um, I don't know, plenty of other people don't talk about gratitude that way. Is that something that you just had in yourself early on? Is that something that was modeled in someone that you know? And is that something that you have a practice around today? Like, do you have at the end of the day, like this gratitude check-in to say, hey, here's the things I'm grateful for? I did. I used to, before bed to help myself sleep, I would write down one thing that I was thankful for. And then I probably in April, because I'm a pretty organized person in April, I was just like falling behind on updating my planner in terms of what I had to do. And I was like, all right, I was like, give yourself a break. Like it, it's okay. This is not the year to be like proactive and prepared all the time. This is the year that you're going to have to learn how to be agile and adapt. Um, and so I, I think that just I would love to, and that is a good practice to have, but I need to get back to it. But I, I have not been keeping up with that. But I would say that it really, it comes from my dad probably because he's just, well, he doesn't expect anything and he's just grateful for whatever he gets. But otherwise he tries to sort of figure everything out on his own and do everything himself. And if someone helps him, he's just happy for it. One of the most um, poignant things that I've ever heard him say was we were, he was in the hospital a few months ago and he fell and he got really frustrated for a minute. And when we finally like, helped him back up and he got back in to the hospital bed, he said, you know, he's like, I need to stop being so um, frustrated about this. I'm lucky to be having the problems of old age. And so like, that's his mentality. And it's, it was a really, I thought, thoughtful way to look at the situation that he was in. And I know that he was frustrated. I know that it, he hated every minute that he'd spend sitting down, but yeah, like we should all be so lucky to have the problems of old age at this point um, at, or at the age that he's at. So I, I think it definitely comes from him and just his approach. And, you know, speaking of like influences on yourself, I mean, what are the ways, you know, we, we talk a lot about other sources of identity and the way they play out in the workplace. I mean, what are the ways you felt that, you know, showing up as South Asian has really impacted your work and you feel like, you know, there's a place for it now and uh, 
it deserves the spotlight and attention and, and uh, support the way that, you know, some of the other human aspects of yourself uh, that you've underscored. Yeah, look, I think that I, part of the reason why I do things like this and why I'm so grateful to people like you for what you're doing in terms of sharing stories within the community is that I used to not. And then I realized as I got a little bit older and was sort of working with some more junior people, I was like, I don't want, like, I want people to realize that like, yes, like your 55 year old white male belongs in our conference room table and our executive meetings, but so do I. Like I'm there, like I look like you. Like, and I remember thinking at times like, man, like nobody looks like me in the jobs that I want. Um, and so that that's part of the reason to do it, which is just to remind people that, hey, like, yeah, you can, actually you do belong. You belong wherever you are capable of and deserve to be. And so if someone else thinks that you ought to be there, then, then take that opportunity. But I want people to realize particularly younger women of South Asian descent, yeah, you can, you can go be an executive at a sports team and there's not. And just because other people don't look like you there doesn't mean you can't do it. You know, my niece is six and uh, she, my sister-in-law texted me the other day and it absolutely broke my heart, but she said that she's, so she's a little bit darker than her brothers and she was crying because she wasn't white and she was just upset. And it's like, that's not like, come on, like, just it's crazy to me that she's that young perceives that still that society like um values whiteness as as its own virtue still and you know that she was upset about it like that and it that's in part because like i remember like watching tv as a kid thinking nobody looks like me like this is not what like the pretty princesses are not like they don't they don't look like me they don't have my coloring they're not tan and you know it it i don't want her to grow up in that world where it's not normal to see someone that looks like her sitting at a boardroom table. You know, I wonder, I think, you know, so any number of people in our community might say to themselves, well, I deserve to be a place where I can generate value. And so you say, okay, well, I'm smart. I work hard. So that's my value. That's why I can be at, you know, whatever firm. Right. And I don't know if a lot of people necessarily perceive, you know, being South Asian, being a woman, that these are things of value and there's inherent value to an organization. Let's say in, apart from the human aspect, which is the most important, I would say, just the bottom line. So, I mean, like, what are the ways that you, you know, from your perspective as a manager and, in, in, you know, the, um, you know, from the perspective of the benefit of an organization, what are the ways in which you've experienced the benefits of diversity? So for, the, for any number of people who might be self-limiting say, hey, well, how could my diversity be useful to this institution? I really want that. That's the path I want to go. But What's the benefit to them? Because any number of people are still thinking about the benefit to them rather than the benefit for themselves. How would you couch it for those people to get them over the, the hump? Sure. So that's a great point. So I think that, look, having, it's so silly to say this, but coming from a different demographic, so growing up with enough money, but not a ton, um, but being pretty sort of disciplined about spending and whatnot, I think that that's actually a different, like, especially when you're trying to appeal to customers that have to pay with their own discretionary income to buy things that they do not need, right? Like, like having that perspective, I think is really helpful. Having the perspective of a woman, especially around the ridiculous time when we switched to the clear bag policy. And can I tell you that just the conversation around the table was like, how will the women react? And I'm like, they're going to be fine. We have pockets. It's okay. <laughs> like we're going to get there. But like I remember that being sort of me. And then look, I think having a difference in age also helps. Um, I think that, you know, the fact that our ownership that our team controlling owner is Pakistani is sort of an interesting um, overlap because he is the only one in the NFL with that as well. But understanding the sort of just the 
the different values that come from being a first generation American um, and being raised in the way that I was like, I think that that's really a helpful perspective that is different from everybody else in the room. And everybody else in the room actually also has their own identity and their own story and their own perspective to add. Um, but I'm just a different one. That's the intersection of all of my various, you know, personality traits and background and, and life experience. You know, and speaking of, you know, your unique role and contributions, I'm wondering now, I mean, you've been at this institution for a number of years now, and, you know, it seems like a place that you have some sense of, um, you know, some destiny with. And so I'm just curious about, you know, what's the mark that, you know, I imagine at this point you're starting to think about, you know, what's going to be my legacy for this institution? So what are the things that you feel like you're remembered already by? And what are the things that you hope to be remembered by in the future? So a coworker said this to me once, but he said, you know, you create space for everybody else to be themselves because you're so unapologetically yourself. And I hope that that's what they take away, which is that what's important is getting the work done, being a good coworker, making sure that our fans have a good time. But, you know, that we're in the we're in the making memories for people business. Like, that's the best part is that you you know that you like when I think of my life, it's punctuated by the 2001 World Series and watching the flag from the Trade Center be out there. Um, and Brenda and Kim giving up those two home runs in the ninth inning at the and you know, for me, my best days at work have been days when you can tell that the fans are really happy and you're making a memory for someone that's going to last them less. And like, you're not going to remember the extra time that you worked. You're going to remember the great night that you had at some poison concert. Um, and we get to be part of that. So for our fans, that's the best part. And then for our employees, I hope that they do get to be unapologetically themselves. Of course, being professional is important. Of course, being reliable and getting your work done and being accountable is important. But you don't have to look and act the same or look and act a particular way to get those things done. And okay. you can have a little bit of fun while doing it. Like, I definitely don't take myself too seriously. Um, okay, I picked up on two things you said. You said unapologetically, unapologetically yourself. And then you mentioned poison. So now I just I have to ask, okay, so like what is, I, I'm getting the sense that you might have an embarrassing playlist in your Spotify. So I just have to ask, so what is- First of all, Reject the premise that it's embarrassing. My very first CD was Monster Ballads. Love hair metal. Love metal. Love rock. Um, what album is this? And then I did. I what's that? What album is this? Monster Ballads. It was just a whole bunch of power oh, sure. ballads by oh, hair sure. metal bands. In okay, the, sure. um, that was released, but I oh gosh, I wore that thing out. And then I wrote my senior thesis on heavy metal music. And it got to the point where I was like, I can't, I need a break from Pantera. And so then I actually got into country music in 2003, um, which is also sort of the last place where you can find a guitar solo on the radio these days. So, Well, I get to ask on heavy metal, like what's your favorite band? Do you have a favorite band? So, um, I grew up loving Bon Jovi and like classic stereotypical Jersey girl style. It was. I'm um, and then obviously they've shifted, but um, yeah. Like they were, they were, Bon Jovi ended up like purposely touring with Judas Priest and not pop acts because the fans were more devoted. And so they were sort of deliberate about it. But obviously, yes, it shifted over time. But that and Metallica. So my uh, last summer, I guess it was last summer, I saw Metallica for the first time at Twickenham Stadium in the UK. And um, that was also just an awesome show. I had a little bit of Metallica phase when I was younger. Uh, very brief. 
but so what so i i guess my last thing i'll ask about is like what was your thesis like what was your take on heavy metal so it traced the um masculine rhetoric and also the working class rhetoric within the music over time um but it was also it sort of looked at that against the background of what was going on in terms of there being sort of a shift towards people going to college, there being less of a sort of social capital for working class men um, and sort of what, how the music um, and the genre evolved over time and how people use their tastes to build up their own identity, right? Like it was very much like I'm into metal, which means that I am more intelligent and more, like I'm into a more sophisticated kind of music than you, other person. So it was sort of building up your own identity through your through your choices and taste. Huh. But yeah, I think that for people that even say that they like listen to metal these days, there's just a set of stereotypes that come along with it, right? Um, and so that 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 was part of it. The larger background is just about how people use their leisure choices to help build their identity. I feel like this does somehow tie everything that you're interested in is just like balance and leisure and identity. And yeah, this is really cool. 